Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. And I'm Jess. And this episode, we're going to be talking with Jeffrey Morris of Future Dude Entertainment. And we've actually talked to him before. Back in 2015, Jess and I responded to a press solicit at San Diego Comic-Con and were pleasantly surprised to meet a dude who is hardcore devoted to putting the sci back in sci-fi. Yeah, his dedication to vetting the story ideas or the things that he was proposing and, and making sure that they would be potentially scientifically viable was really refreshing and just really great to see. His projects are all sort of transmedia projects. He has a number of different sort of cornerstone things he's developing, but they've taken a lot of forms. There's been comic books and short films so far. There's an animated short called Parallel Man that I highly recommend checking out and a comic that goes with it. All of them really great, geared up to be turned into whatever kind of, well, probably movie someday, probably should be turned into a movie. But then the thing we're focusing on today is Oceanus, a project which Jess and I had previously seen as a short film that you can watch now on the internet, and also a comic book that's sort of the graphic interpretation of what happens in that short film. Oceanus has grown a lot in the past couple years, and now Jess and I have been granted an exclusive look at concept art and even an entire feature film script for what is to be a forthcoming film and television series. And if that sounds advantageous for a studio you've never heard of before, you're not wrong. This project is ballsy, and the scope is a bit startling. So Jess and I are very excited to be talking with Jeffrey Morris about Oceanus and how exactly this crazy project is getting put together. Yeah, I mean, just a complete dedication to getting the science right to a level that I don't think I have seen in any kind of recent Hollywood outlet at all. He's got Neil deGrasse Tyson and Kevin Grazier, who worked on the Cassini probe as science consultants. I think we can all agree that a lot of times sci-fi movies of late have left us wanton for more. And to put intelligence back into science fiction, which is kind of his motto or tagline, I think would be really refreshing and exciting for a lot of us science nerds. Yeah. Jeffrey Morris, he's doing something over here. His background is really varied. He's definitely going with the whole renaissance man lifestyle choice (laughs) (laughs) and he's doing it all outside of the system 
Yep. And then his own personal story from a film perspective is deeply fascinating to me. It's not actually too dissimilar from what we're doing with Lightning Dogs, which is a project that we accidentally came up with on Nerdy Show and have over the years been developing it into a animated series and a comic series as well. And we are also doing it outside of that respective industry. And that's a hell of a struggle. So seeing someone else doing it is deeply inspiring. And I think any creative could benefit from seeing someone else succeeding in an uphill battle and getting so many other talented people involved. He has the famed original Star Trek writer, DC Fontana, attached to the project. And if you're not familiar with her name, She worked on the original series, the animated series, The Next Generation, and then a slew of other things you enjoy, like various one-off episodes here and there throughout science fiction television, Babylon 5, Transformers Beast Wars, even one of my personal obscure favorites, Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. I don't know that I've ever seen that one. I think it only lasted a season, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, mid-late 90s, and it was pretty great. So the plot of Oceanus, without any spoilers whatsoever, is there's a beautiful science city being built beneath the waves. It's funded by the richest man in the entire world. The first trillionaire. Yes, Dorian Xanthus. And there's lots of different things happening insofar as scientific experiments, personal drama, all these things are going on. And then something catastrophic happens. Essentially, the world ends. And that's where the story really begins, a story of survival in what becomes presumably the last outpost of humanity on Earth. And I guess it's safe to say that that disaster is a asteroid which was pulled into orbit for this purpose of mining actually hitting the planet. So that's a story in a nutshell. <laughs> it probably does no service to the drama and action and characters that we read about in the script, but that's the core premise. And uh, that's probably all we can safely say without spoiling too much for this still in development film project. Yeah. I mean, I guess just know the story is very big, very intricate and exciting to go through. So we'll cut to the chase. With us on the phone is Jeffrey Morris, a future dude. Hey there. Or are you the future dude? (laughs) I suppose so. I'm not aware of any others out there. (laughs) It is a big universe, though, so there could be another one out there in the the vast cosmos. (laughs) I occupy the unique space on this world. Every century there's a future dude and presently you are its uh, chosen (laughs) avatar. (laughs) I I pass the ring down, you know, to the, yeah, I'll give it to the next, the next future dude will take his place. The story you've outlined is pretty ballsy in that it's not just a story about an underwater civilization and the trials and tribulations of that as anyone could i assume you know make assumptions about okay so it's about a it's about a sea base so it's like deep space nine or babylon five but underwater but in fact it's really a disaster piece yeah (laughs) for me i'd love to see a show just about living underwater right i think i'd be just that's cool right (laughs) that's enough i'd be like that's that's challenging and dangerous enough as a matter of fact i was trying to pitch in hollywood for years the idea that you didn't have to have space battles or monsters to do a sci-fi space, you know, interplanetary story because, you you know, space is already trying to kill you. You know, there's so many things that are deadly out there. You know, you don't need that. Same thing with being underwater. I'm an avid scuba diver. And one of the first things they say, I, I remember my scuba training, we watch a video and, and in the first five minutes they say, it's dangerous. It can be deadly and you could die. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, okay, I get it. I get it. And, you know, it's true. It's like you're going to another world. You know, it's, not, it's a world we're not evolved to readily exist in. So it's, it's a big challenge. And what I want to do is tell a story about how difficult it will be 
you know, kind of like we think about how the challenges that the initial pioneers had or, or the explorers had going out across the oceans and traveling across the earth. I mean, you know, a lot of those people never came back because it was a real challenge. That's exactly the same kind of thing that's going to happen for people going in space and going into this underwater world. So I guess where I'm going is it was a challenge to sell this story, a realistic, scientifically based, accurate science fiction adventure. It's a pretty difficult pitch in Hollywood. And so I've gotten very lucky in finding partners in the UK who get it and they get it and they're very excited about it. And that's not to say that I think there's a huge number of potential fans for this series here in the U.S., but I think that it's advantageous for us to produce it elsewhere and then bring it back into the U.S. And I think the exciting part is the partners that I have, they're actually saying, make it smarter. <laughs> I'm yes. Like, really? Yes. Yeah. They're like, yeah, make it smarter. I'm like, yes, smarter? That's what I want to hear. They said to me, we want to make a show that's not a kid's show or a family show, but a show that kids could actually watch or that a family could watch. I'm like, that was a huge relief to me because I actually want to produce projects that don't talk down to the audience, that aren't stupid, but that are very, very intelligent, but can attract a broad audience. So it's exciting. That's awesome. And so I'd actually love to dig in something here. And one of the things that so excited us when we first met at Comic-Con was how dedicated you are to putting the science back into science fiction. We've seen that you have Neil deGrasse Tyson and Kevin Gracier, who is an astrophysicist who's worked on the Cassini probe. And I would be super interested to hear a little bit more about your process and kind of how you lean on experts to kind of inform the work that you're doing. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, obviously, I'm what I would call a science enthusiast. I mean, I've always studied some science, you know, on my own since I was a child. So when it comes to meeting with these guys and stuff, it was interesting, like, I was talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson back in March and I was showing him the project and trying to get his buy-in and interested. It was funny because he started talking to me about different aspects of the moon and the earth and everything. And I was able to say things back to him like, yeah, yeah, it's tidally locked, right? He's like, uh, yeah. He looked at me like, oh, you know that. <laughs> you know, so it was like, yeah. it, was really, it was really cool because I can hang out with NASA guys and science advisors and I can speak their language. And the key for all of us is like evangelizing science, right? We want to find a way to bring it down from the, the lofty altitudes down to the everyday person. Carl Sagan was really good at that. That's part of what, you know, he's, he's one of my greatest heroes along with Gene Roddenberry in that he was able to popularize science. So for example, uh, Kevin Grazier and I, when I said, you know, I want to build this underwater city in my story, where would I do that? Where and why? And what he did is he started doing research and he came back to me and he said, you know, I think you need to put this thing in the Emperor Seamounts because they're southeast of Japan. They're kind of between Japan and Hawaii. And he's like, you've got a chain of these undersea mountains and they've got kind of flat tops and they'd be a perfect place to build an underwater city. And they also still have some geothermal activity, which you could use as a power supply. Right. So wow, I was yeah. like, that's awesome. And so one of the things in the feature film not only is the underwater city located there, but a big part of the uh, adventure takes place in the Emperor Trench, which is a real place. So I'm trying to get that right. I'm trying to get it right because I'm hoping that people who watch this will actually do a little research or be inspired, especially kids, to go, is that real? And then, you know, with this age of Google, look it up and go, wow, that's real. So that means this could really happen. Yeah. I have a big interest in science that goes way back to childhood. It really started off with space, but occupying equal footing for me was the study of the oceans and uh, the weather, that sort of thing. And the oceans, there was a cartoon called Sea Lab 2020 back when I was a kid. And I think it was it subsequently turned into a kind of a comedy series, Sea Lab 2021. But the point is, when I saw that series back when I was a little kid, that seemed very believable to me that in the, in the 21st century, we'd have underwater cities. And uh, I'd never felt like anyone had, um, you know, as I grew up, I wanted more 
um, underwater stuff. It seems like a, a lot of the stuff that, that would be produced was uh, kind of campy, like uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea had some cool designs, but it ended up being kind of a Monster of the Week type show. And ultimately, the show Sequest went the same direction. I think the movie The Abyss was one of the few touchstones of um, futuristic underwater adventure that seemed you know, realistic and plausible. So I started thinking about the idea of developing a story that uh, let us go forward into our own 21st century and using today's technology and projecting it forward and that sort of thing and you know, telling a story about people living underwater. So in 2014, I had just launched the Future Dude uh, brand and was developing comic books and mobile device games and that sort of thing. And the opportunity came up to uh, show what I could do as a film director, which is my ultimate goal. So what I decided to do was instead of doing a space project, I actually had a space project that I wanted to do. I decided that it would be more fun and a little bit more unique to do something underwater. I began developing a concept uh, with my wife that uh, you know, we started talking about the idea of uh, a married couple underwater and them having an adventure where they're separated and that sort of thing. So as we wrote the script, I designed Submarine and we, we were going to set the entire story within that submarine, that sort of thing. So what happened was we ended up shooting in Los Angeles. We constructed the submarine in Vancouver, shipped it down to Los Angeles, detailed it, and then had a, an eight-day shoot. And we had some great actors in it. We even had Malcolm McDowell doing the voice of the computer, which was awesome. Got to work with him. It took us a while to do the visual effects and sound and music and everything. So we got that finished in early 2015, and it actually did quite well for us. When we, we released it on Blu-ray, online. After that, we kind of sat back and said, you know, what, where do we want to take this? And I had a lot of interest from people to kind of carry the project forward as a feature film, a full feature film in theaters. And so the first thought was to take the half hour that we had actually shot and make that the first act of a you know, two-hour movie. So shoot another 90 minutes. And I wrote a script for that, and I loved it. I thought it was really cool. It really had a lot of sort of twists and turns, and it harkened back to old-school sci-fi and that sort of thing. But what we found out is that it really wasn't working. That short film had a beginning, middle, and end. So to create, take a story that had a beginning, middle, and end, and then connect it as the first part of a story that's going to have a beginning, middle, and end, it didn't work. So I eventually had to completely jettison that concept and start over from scratch. The script that I shared with you guys recently, that was just completed in December, and it's a completely new take on the, on the project. In a lot of ways, the original story is still there, but this lets us go further with it. So that screenplay really caught fire. We were able to attach Lance Reddick, actor from uh, The Wire and Fringe, as the lead. And now we are in the process of turning it into a full feature. I've done design work as production designer. I've designed all the sets, costumes, vehicles, all that stuff. And we've got a, a partnership now in place to produce this as a feature film in early 2018. So that's kind of the timeline so far. But that's not all, though, because there's also... <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. So <laughs> another thing that happened along the way was an interest in developing a TV series. You know, a lot of people actually looked at the original short and they said, this should be on TV. Why don't you put this on TV? The issue and concern I have is that, first off, I see myself as a film director first and foremost, and I really wanted to show what I could do telling this big underwater story on the big screen. But I started developing a Bible for a television series based upon the feature film. And I broke out 10 story ideas. And then I ended up meeting Dorothy Fontana, who is, most people know her as DC Fontana. And we were just getting together, actually. Um, I met with her and her husband for dinner, and we were talking about visual effects. Her husband is Dennis Skotak, who's an Oscar-winning uh, visual effects supervisor, who had actually worked on Terminator, The Abyss, and some other films. And he and I were actually talking about how you do underwater visual effects. So I was showing them the project. And Dorothy expressed an interest in talking about it further. So once I got the feature film script done, I shot it over to her. 
And she really, really liked it. She called it a page turner. She, she really got into it. And then she said, okay, you know, well, what do you have for a TV series? So I shared my notes and she said she was interested in helping me develop it further and uh, turn it into the full miniseries. This is going to be the first series that she's worked on as a consulting producer in like 30 years. She and I have had a really great collaboration, a lot of fun. I've developed 10 episode ideas and she's been kind of helping me tweak those. So uh, right now, the goal is that in early 2018, we'll shoot the feature film and then we will go from there directly into production on a 10 episode TV series. I think the feature film will debut in spring of 2019, and then the TV series, we'd either do it in the fall of 2019 or the spring of 2020. That's when the TV series will hit. Now, that sort of timeline and having a a film and a TV series tie in like that with such a close proximity would be advantageous even for a major studio. So how exactly have you managed to cement this crazy plan? Well, what's happened is I had to leave Hollywood to do it. (laughs) Um, What I did is... uh, I've got partners in uh, the uh, United Kingdom now. I'm working with a great company called Evolutionary Films. And what's happened is through Evolutionary, we were able to put together a package for financing with the private equity fund and then also in a partnership with Pinewood Studios. So Pinewood is, if you're not familiar with them, they're the place that uh, Star Wars films are shot and uh, James Bond films. I would like to think that for any science fiction fan, Pinewood is a holy place. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's been my dream to work at Pinewood my entire career. So the thought that for my first feature film, we're going to be shooting at Pinewood. It's pretty amazing. So we're looking at shooting at Pinewood, Wales. We're going to start pre-production in the UK in, I believe, August. And then uh, we'll be in full production in uh, February. I can't officially announce who our partner is going to be for the network, but we are out to the bigger networks in the UK to carry the project. And then in all likelihood, what will happen is the TV series will come back into the United States. We'll do a simultaneous deal to uh, release the show over here via Amazon or Netflix. Those are the likely places, one of those two. I love it. Are you going to be reusing film assets for the television series, I assume? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, one thing that's going to happen with the TV series that uh, is going to be pretty cool is that TV series, actually half of it takes place on the moon. Right. (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about that because that's... (laughs) (laughs) I've always wanted to tell this story about people on the moon versus people on the earth having very different agendas and perspectives. And so the fun part with this story is it's going to let me create a conflict, basically a conflict between two groups of people who are funded by the same entity, led by the same entity, but who are at odds. And they're at odds in a situation where they're literally the only people left. It's going to be very interesting. So I'm planning to have a lot of fun with it. I've always wanted to tell a moon base style story as well. So I'm getting to kill two birds with one stone. So in the story, there is a massive global catastrophe that essentially leaves the only surviving remnants of humanity, as far as we know, anyway. As far as we know. As far as we know. (laughs) In completely inhospitable locales, surrendered 100% to science, below the ocean surface and up on the moon. Can we talk about how and why exactly that happens? What I wanted to do with this story... First off, I wanted to have a chance to do political commentary. We're obviously in a very interesting time, a time of a lot of political turmoil, a lot of change. In some ways, it's, it's just as volatile as what was going on in the 1960s when they did the original Star Trek. And if you look at what Gene Roddenberry was really trying to do in the 1960s was produce a project about the 1960s. But the networks didn't want to do a show about the 1960s, so he went and set it 300 years in the future. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about what's going on today with our politics, with our environment, with our culture and social issues and so on and so forth. And I want to basically pull the plug on the surface. There's a very interesting social commentary that we can get in 
by isolating groups of humanity and then being able to have a conversation about how would they survive? How do they cope? Can they create a better future for themselves? Because they really have no choice. When you look at like Star Trek Voyager, to me, that was a premise that never got to where it could have because, you know, I, I was excited about that premise when it first uh, came up because I, I was like, man, the idea of the Starfleet crew being cut off and stuck on the other side of the galaxy and they can't just pull into a star base and get things fixed. What will happen is that ship slowly degrades and we'll, what will happen to morale? And to me, there's got to be a sense of hope that comes out of trying to fight that and getting through it. And that never really arose from that series for me. No, um, it's true. Voyager could have been such a different show, but it seemed like everything kept getting better for them. They achieved warp speeds yeah. that no other ship could get. It just kept getting better, even though it should have been getting worse and worse. Exactly. I wanted Voyager to be like the Blues Mobile. You know, when they finally, <laughs> if they, if, if and when they finally made it back, I wanted to just go, you know, just completely fall apart. You know? <laughs> Like they finally make it back to Starfleet and just it just falls apart. That would have been Voyager to me. So that's a lot of what I'm trying to do with Oceanus is say, how do we get to our best by going through our worst and being in the worst possible situation and also having a critique in the story about what humans are currently doing to our planet and how we're treating our planet and, and that sort of thing. I think all that's in there. So, yes, we have a villain who has taken it upon himself to decide to accelerate a process that we seem to be inevitably traversing, right? That's what we're doing to ourselves. So he he decides to speed it up. <laughs> that's, that's what our villain's all about in the story. I don't know how much can be said about him, but um, Dorian Xanthus, the lead villain, it's complicated writing a villain like that, someone who is so rich and so powerful that they can literally take the fate of a planet into their own hands. What exactly do you feel the motivation is behind a figure like that? Are they out of touch with reality? Do they have deeply altruistic intentions but are very misguided? Villains are difficult. Yeah, you know, there's certain villains. I just don't get them. Like the Emperor, for example, in Star Wars, I still to this day do not understand his motivation. I don't get it. I guess he's just evil. You know what I mean? It's like it's like <laughs> he's manipulative and evil. He says things like this. You know, it's like I don't know what I don't know what it is other than that. I don't get it. And I I looked at uh, James Bond villains quite a bit. I looked at like uh, Hugo Drax from Moonraker, which is not one of the better James Bond films. But his goal of sort of creating this sort of perfect master race sort of thing. I wanted to create a villain that our audience is torn, where, where we're torn, where there's some percentage of the audience that's literally like, you know, maybe this guy's got a point. And there's another side of the audience that's like, hey, things were just fine. What right does he have to destroy the world? You know, I want that debate to occur. And I'm hoping that through that debate around the villain's view, that he's a very gray area villain where some people are like on his side, literally, and others are very much against him. So I'm hoping to create that kind of dynamic. And I think that good villains have convoluted motivations and they actually deep down believe they're the hero. Does that make sense? Like deep oh, down, sure. they think they're the hero. They think they're doing something right. And so you're right. This guy has so much money. He's the first trillionaire and he has so much money that in his mind, it's like, well, I've just decided to completely play God here and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to change it. That's really what Xanthus is all about. And plus, I, I love his name, Dorian Xanthus. What a great villain name. <laughs> yeah, so I, really <laughs> Climate change is mentioned often in the script. And then I believe there was also a mention of not too long from now as a reference of when this is taking place. But I was curious to kind of get to know or from your perspective, where do you see Oceanus kind of happening on Earth's timeline or, or our trajectory? You know, one of the things that I don't like to get into, I don't, I, it's definitely happening in the 21st century. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I see it happening kind of around the mid 21st century. I used to be the put a date on it guy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the thing that the danger of putting dates on things is that uh, obviously with the case of your 2001s and, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's just or Blade it Runner. doesn't always pass, right? Blade Runner. Yeah. We've got a lot of changes happening between now and 2019. Man, I'm assuming that the new Blade Runner movie, let's just jump on that for a second. I'm interested in your opinions on it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the new Blade Runner, it, I, I assume that they're just acting like that was the timeline and it's just the same timeline as that timeline. That's right? all I can figure. That's the same thing they've done for the official Back to the Future extensions in the comic books. You know, that 2015 is just the 2015 and that's how they're playing it. Yeah, it's probably smart. It's just an alternate reality. <laughs> so yeah. In our case, I'm looking at our current reality and I, I know there are those out there talking about uh, asteroid mining, for example. And the idea that, that asteroid mining may very well come to pass, I think looking at 20, 30, 40 years from now, I think it's very believable that that could be happening. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you could build an advanced underwater facility within the next 20 to 40 years, I think is very believable. And I think that what starts to happen, if you get out past like 40 years from now or something like that, you're really starting to make things up. Yeah. Not, you know, one of the things that always bugged me about Star Trek, especially Next Generation, I feel like those were people from the 1980s acting like they were in the 24th century. Their hairstyles or the music they listen to. You know, one of the things I like about The Expanse is that they actually have hairstyles and tattoos and yes, yeah. languages, you know, and, and, and dialects and accents that are based upon hundreds of years of living in these different environments. I think that's really cool. And I think it's much more believable. And I always was like, you know, why? I, I would go like, why can't Riker like have half of his head shaped? You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> I, I, it's kind of funny imagining Jonathan Frakes with half his head shaped, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, why do they just look like people from now? Why wouldn't they have different hairstyles, perspectives, things like that? You know, music, when they listen to music, they're listening to music from now or even earlier than now. It just didn't make sense to me. It felt like a lack of imagination in some ways. It's like, you know, they put so much emphasis in, into aliens. I was like, why don't we make our own civilization evolve and talk about that? So one of the things I'm doing, just the other day, I met with this uh, neurobiologist, this researcher who does a lot of stuff with advanced uh, analysis of the brain. He works at UCLA and he and I were talking a lot about what I want to do with Oceanus and a, a new component that I'm adding just this past week. I'm going to have the characters all have this implant where there's some- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cell phone, basically, it's something that's actually implanted. You'll see it on their temple. So if they want to talk to someone or have a phone call or something, they just tap their temple. And I also plan to have it interface with different systems on the ship. Mm. Like one of the things we're going to do that I think is going to be really cool is the windows, not only are they going to be transparent, but they're also going to be able to change 
the windows to be an augmented reality environment. So if they're deep in underwater, so where there's nothing visible, they'll actually have sonar projections on the windows that they'll be able to see. So in other words, you'll look outside and you'll see a sonar projection of the canyons. That's very that cool. nice. Stuff. What I'm going to do is have their neural implant control all that. So you're going to get to see that. So that's the kind of stuff that I want to play around with when we're saying we're 30, 40 years in the future. It's stuff like that, you know, that I think could be really cool and interesting. Maybe the hairstyles are a little different. Obviously, we've got our costumes and everything that are going to fit in. You know, another thing I'm playing around with this is that I got in an argument with someone back around, I don't know, 2000, 2003 or so about flip phones. And this guy was trying to tell me that, well, there's no way flip phones are influenced by Star Trek. I'm like, are you kidding? Who are the people who made them? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, like the people who make flip phones, they, they had to be, you know. So the thought to me that you have a futuristic underwater civilization that has to be influenced by science fiction to some degree, the people who designed and built it. So to me, I'm putting all kinds of little homages in the design work. I believe the engineers and designers who do this would do that in real life, you know? So I love what you're saying about the different interpretations of the future and how flawed in many regards Star Trek was in not really showcasing the, I mean I guess they needed to make it accessible because it was that's why it's the entry point oh, for yeah, no, sci-fi I get that. but that's definitely an aspect of this is that I know for sure I've read it I've read that the producers were really concerned about freaking people out you know they didn't want to alienate the audience Rick Berman specifically he was very very concerned about that I'm just saying that they could have even just done a sprinkling 5% you right, know, just 5%. Right. <laughs> it have to be 50%, just 2%, 5% of just make it a little different because it's 400 years from now. And all we got <laughs> yeah. was the dude in the skirt in the background for the first two seasons, and that was as far exactly, as... Exactly, <laughs> exactly, which which just in the end just kind of seemed a little weird. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Like the idea is actually really cool, but the way they played it, it was so like thrown in. It was more of a of a weird sight gag than look, right. the future yeah. is progressive and interesting. It, was like, it wasn't progressive or interesting. It was kind of just like, well, that's weird. It didn't play correctly because it visually it just you didn't understand it within the context of the world. That's my point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the world yeah. has changed so much in our own lifespans culturally that if any of us went back in time to say around the time we were born, so many aspects of our sentence structure and weird turns of phrase would be completely and utterly alien. So having that little sort of just touch of, I guess you could most equate it to cyberpunk in this, of knowing that things are going to be different and they're going to be weird. That's yeah, that's great. I think so. Like I said, I'm only going to season it by, you know, two to 5% because we're only talking about we're still in our own century and stuff. But again, like you say, there are things that are different now than 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Way different. I mean, if you took somebody from 19... 19- 50 and you just plop them into nowadays can you possibly imagine what it would be like for them no just show them the walking dead for a minute you know what what would they they'd just be like well rah, you know <laughs> this is what you guys watch you know you guys watch this for you know the picture you, is so clear <laughs> but but on the other hand you moral degenerates what's wrong with you yes yeah. yes Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On so many different levels. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think when you're looking at 30 or 40 years from now, you got to have things a little different. You got to have a, just some seasonings in there. That's another one of the things that I think worked with Firefly so well. Yes, it was Old West influence, but man, that, that was just so clever. Yeah. And I think it also touches on kind of one of the more interesting aspects that I found in reading the script was in some of the times of conflict, the ways of battle, I guess one would say, or engagement 
are a little different than you would think they would be now or even looking at Star Trek or others. So it's not, you know, phasers and we're going to go up against each other. It's actually more in the tech that we have and how it can be repurposed to potentially turn against us. And I thought that was rather clever and kind of seems like it's along those lines of what does battle look like 40 or 50 years from now? I'm really glad to hear you picked up on that. And that's actually something that I'm planning to really, really emphasize in the TV series. It's, it's to me the idea that you've got these two groups of people on the moon and underwater, and neither one are in mil- military facilities. They're not military mm-hmm. facilities. Okay, and so they're not trained I, either, yeah. And they're not they're trained. They're scientists, yeah. They're scientists, yeah. exactly. They're scientists. So then part of what Xanthus is doing is he's got a thing with drones. And so that's going to be a big part of this. So part of this is that there's some defensive things that he's put in place that they don't know about. So when I talk about these other military powers or others out there in the ocean, he's kind of thought about that. And we'll, we'll get yeah. to that. But the idea that you get these people on the moon when our villain is kind of forced to go to them for help or assistance, part of what has to happen is they've got to repurpose all this science tech to use it for potentially armed conflict. What do you use if you actually are in a, in a war with somebody and you're a scientist and you're not, you don't have weapons, quote unquote? That's actually part of the story that I want to get into as well. Very cool. Now, one of the big differences about Oceanus is pretty obvious. It's underwater. And there's only a handful of shows and films that have dabbled with that, generally because filming with water is extremely expensive. But because it's a self-contained environment with the humans inside these ships and pods and so on, that allows for a lot of corners to be cut. So why is it you think that people have not been doing this same kind of thing with underwater stories? Why are underwater stories so rare if that illusion can be built so easily when it comes to humans? Well, a couple of things. So I, I did some research when, you know, as we've been developing this project and, you know, like, why aren't there more underwater movies? Well, one, there's good discomfort and there's bad discomfort for an audience. There are audiences who are into horror films, for example, or these sort of thrill rides, you know, car chases, things like that. There are types of distress that people enjoy. The stress of claustrophobia is not one that audiences seem to like very much. You know, so, so when you have submarine movies, the research I've done is that submarine movies have not done as well as a lot of their sci-fi counterparts because the audiences don't want to do a lot of repeat viewings with movies that where they're stuck inside a tube <laughs> with a bunch of characters, you know, and everything, right? You think about a film like Das Boot, which that's, you know, really what the movie's about, right? It's, yeah. it's about the stuckness in the, and, and, it, and it just so beautifully illustrates the psychological tension of being stuck in an environment like that and the dangers inherent to it. So one of the things that I'm doing with Oceanus to make it less claustrophobic is the fact that we've got new materials. Scotty's uh, transparent aluminum in the last uh, couple of years actually became real. You know, they've actually developed the ways to make actual transparent aluminum. Yeah, and I couldn't Um, help but notice that that was a detail that was in the script. Yes, absolutely. So the idea that our characters actually can see through their windows in the submarines, or you'll be able to actually see them inside the submarines, that's different than, you know, when you look at the, a typical naval sub right now, they don't have any windows on them because they can't withstand the pressure. So the idea that um, these vehicles can actually withstand this tremendous pressure and you can still see, that's really cool. And that, that opens it up. That makes this a lot more breathable, I think, for the audience in a way, hypothetically, you know, and so I think that's something that, uh, that, that makes this uh, a little different. I also think that the approach that I'm taking of giving us a lot of different cool underwater environments to go into. So it's not like we're just stuck in one submarine, but we actually get to visit an underwater city. We're in this, uh, the Odyssey one science rig. It's, uh, my favorite location. 
this sort of place that's there for hard science that they are able to move around the ocean. And um, I think that's really cool. And then also we've got our various aqua shuttles, which uh, the name is an homage to a, a vehicle that was in the Star Trek cartoon, actually. They had, you know, shuttlecraft that could go underwater in, in Star Trek. They called them aqua shuttles. So that's what I decided to name them in our story. Beautiful. Um, yeah. So the, <laughs> the aqua shuttles are super cool. They're like at least three versions of those you're going to get to see. So, you know, there's enough variety here that I think it, it's going to feel open and uh, really thrilling for the audience. I couldn't help but notice another piece of uh, pop culture tech that reappeared in the script. And that is the Caterpillar drive inside a submarine, which is from Hunt for Red October, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. None of the craft in the story have screws or the you know, typical propulsion systems for submarines. I went with this magneto hydrodynamic propulsion system, which is basically like an underwater jet engine. You know, it's just basically uh, these super cool magnets. They, they suck the water in and shoot it out the back. It's really cool. That's a very, very simple way of explaining it. But Basically, you know, so it's like these underwater jets and it gives us a chance to have vehicles that can go a lot faster than the typical sci-fi submarine. And I also gave these hydrodynamic shapes. So I looked at when I was designing the various vessels, I wanted them to have shapes that were much more based on sea creatures. So I think that works well, too. Now, if I'm well informed about this, and I truly might not be, the second Avatar film is going to be very oceanic in nature, and that's coming out at the end of 2018. I actually, they just uh, released the dates and I think it's officially in 2019. Oh, so we're going to so. have a very wet 2019. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going first. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, we're going first. We're going first. So. Then camera yeah. will be ripping you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, supposedly uh, Avatar 2 has a very extensive underwater component to it. Do you think this so. is an example of one of those kind of cultural zeitgeist collective unconscious kind of things where you know we end up with two big asteroid movies in the same year or two down and out superhero films in the same year everyone's sort of sharing this narrative and all of a sudden the time is right collectively we've all decided yeah you know it, it is feeling that way there's some film that's starring uh, Kristen stewart that's uh that's in development too i can't remember what it's called but it, you know, it was one of those times where I have all these people going, did you see this? They ripped you off. I'm like, you know, I don't think they ripped me off. I, it's, it's okay. You know, it's, just, you know, it's, it's like, that's like saying you made a cop show and then there's, there's another cop show. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's, there's just, you know, it's, it's okay. We'll all tell our stories. It's okay. So yeah, I think that there's definitely the time to go underwater. There's plenty of space stuff. You know, with Star Wars being back and the Star Trek reboots and Guardians of the Galaxy and, you know, there's plenty of space stuff. I think it's time to do stuff that's underwater, something a little different. I also am really excited about going to the moon because I that I'm not seeing anybody doing. I'm hoping to have some fun with that. It, well, actually, your projects in general, the things that I can compare the most to, at least in, in the scope and the intent, is Duncan Jones's film Moon, which was absolutely a hard sci-fi sci-fi. As a matter of fact, some of the same team members, people who worked on movies like Moon, are going to be working on this. We're also going to be lucky, though, because we get to have some of the people who worked on Star Wars. Yeah. So, you know, so it's like, yeah, we're going to have a great crew on this project. But yes, I mean, looking at Moon and what was accomplished with such a low budget, when I looked at modular sets and repeatable, you know, aspects of this that could bring the cost down, you know, because the other thing, when you're making a movie like this that is very hard science fiction and trying to keep it realistic, it's difficult to get those kind of budgets. Hollywood doesn't really want to risk a lot of money on that. <laughs> so right. Moon would never have been made if he hadn't been able to put something together and get that made for five. You know, he literally made that film for five million bucks. So it's, you know, it was a very low budget film, but he had very, very high quality content that he put together. 
So a lot of the better science fiction movies in the last few years, they haven't been big budget films. Like, you know, a film like Ex Machina, that was another one that was like under 15 million. We hit a time now where visual effects, you can do anything. I think that what's missing are integrating visual effects with really, really great, fantastic human stories. You know, using the visual effects as an enhancement. So that's what I'm doing with Oceanus. Let's talk about working with DC Fontana, because that's a pretty remarkable thing. I imagine striking up a creative relationship with her has been fascinating. Yes, absolutely. It's been a huge honor, first and foremost. And second, you know, to me, it's a verification that I was on the right track with the project. She's pushed me really hard on making sure the characters are very well-rounded and that they all have something to do. You know, she's very much into the ensemble thing as opposed to, you know, spending too much emphasis on the main characters. You know, like in this case, it's like, let's give everybody something to do and let's make sure they all have a voice here. That's something she really pushed me on. We also have been talking a lot about that aspect of bringing in the social commentary. In my last meeting with her, we were having a lot of the conversation about the current political climate in the U.S. And I started thinking about the idea of equating Dorian Xanthus with Donald Trump to some degree, but maybe not quite in the way that you'd expect. Let's just say that I think that you can get into a very interesting critique. And she agreed with me. And I ran some ideas past her on how can we talk about and critique the current political climate in the U.S. And even getting into talking about the media, that's a big part of this. And media, kind of this concept of fake news and disinformation or tinged news that's sort of pushed in one direction or another to manipulate people's minds. Mm. That's something she and I are working very hard to integrate into the story. And I think that's going to be really cool. You know, the people on the moon base and the people at Oceanus, maybe their views of each other are incorrect because they're being fed incorrect information. And maybe they're tending to want to believe some of that because it fits in with some of their views of each other already that were already pre-existing before mm -hmm. the circumstance occurred, right? So that's part of what I'm going to get into <laughs> with the story. And ultimately, it's into direct conflict, physical conflict. So by the end of the first season, the, the stories I've mapped out, it's pretty cool. And also, we answer the question, are there other people that survived this disaster? You know, are there other people out there other than the people underwater? And are there other people underwater that we run into? And that is part Ooh. of the first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe Oceanus isn't the only place with people underwater that survived. It you is know, a big ocean. There are other navies out there and there are other submarines out there and others out there. So that comes to a head and becomes uh, an issue in the first season as well. That's awesome. So I think we have a rich, fertile ground to kind of get in and ask some interesting questions. And the thing that's cool about this is, again, it's not in a galaxy far, far away or on Pandora or something. This is on Earth. And we're going to be dealing with our own people. And our own. You know, you know what? Uh, do you guys watch The Expanse at all? Yes. And I thought the second season, the second half of the second season really gelled. And I think that the sort of political commentary that's going on in that series, we're going to have, you know, that similar sort of charged discussion about where humanity is and where humanity could go. That's what she and I are doing. Cool. And another big name you have attached to it is Lance Reddick, who's in for the film. I assume he's in for the TV series as well. Um, yes. And he's been attached to this project for quite a while. What drew him to this? Lance and I worked together on Parallel Man. That was the first thing we did. And we got along very well. And he and I developed a friendship and started hanging out. And we started talking about, you know, he's actually a big science fiction fan. He's got this huge comic book collection. And, you know, he's voiced characters in some uh, various video games like Destiny. He's one of the main characters in that game. And so, so we've had a lot of conversations. We've talked a lot about different touch points of science fiction, that sort of thing, his experience in Fringe. So we're developing a relationship where for a number of my sci-fi projects, I'm looking at tapping him as being potentially the lead, you know, because I think we could have a lot of fun 
and play very, very different versions of these, you know, these sort of futuristic sci-fi characters. He actually came on not only as, uh, as attaching as lead actor, but he's also um, a producer for Oceanus as well. So we've been working together on securing other cast members. Funny story, he and I were talking about uh, what were his motivations to get into acting. And he said that uh, he had a teacher in high school. He hadn't even really considered acting. He had a teacher in high school who had pushed him about, you know, um, tomorrow I want you to come in the class and I want you to do a scene. Because I, I think you might have the chops to do something with acting. And I want you to come, go home and think of a character that you'd most want to be and then come in and do a scene based on that character. And uh, he went home and thought about it long and hard. And the character that he most w- was motivated to, to be and portray was Captain Kirk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that was really cool, you know. And so I, I was like, so when this came around, I was like, dude, I think I'm going to try to, I'm going to make you Captain Kirk. You're going to be Captain <laughs> Kirk. And a lot of the roles that Lance plays typically are police lieutenants or, you know, leaders in the, you know, like police commissioner type guys and that kind of thing. You know, you remember the character you played in Fringe, you know, Agent Broyles is very, very serious, very down to the job. You know, my goal with him in Oceanus is to play a very different guy where if you meet him in real life, he's a very, very warm, friendly guy. And he smiles a lot, laughs a lot. You know, that's a big part of what I want to bring. There's a charm that Captain Kirk had, you know, in that original series, especially the, the first season. You could tell why people loved him so much and wanted to follow his lead. That's what I'm building into this character with uh, Ben Matthews. I want that warmth. I want that camaraderie and love around him that he brings, which is a big part of why in the story he makes the decision to go against Xanthus early in the film. He doesn't feel Xanthus has his people's best interests in mind. And then if we get the actor that we're going after for for Xanthus, you guys are going to be blown away. So I can't say anything (laughs) more. Can't say anything more than think dinosaurs. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah, okay. Jess and I have been privy to certain documents showing people who were reading this thing and the cast, the, the cast of people that you guys have been looking at, some great selections. And yes, the fellow who's a maybe for Xanthus is the casting choice I was most excited about. And if you land mm. that, then people's brains are going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, that individual and Lance Reddick actually have worked together previously and they know each other and um, they have a camaraderie also. So I'm hoping that we pull this off because I'm like, wow, this is going to be fun. It's not like these, you know, we get these two actors who actually have a rapport outside of acting, which is very cool. The timeline for this is production begins later this year, right? Right now we're in active development, and I would say our official pre-production start is in the fall. So we're, we're you know, we'll start uh, building the sets and uh, costumes and everything and rehearsing. We're doing all of our storyboards and animatics right now and getting that all, you know, figured out. And so then we'll do our actual construction and everything in the fall. And, and we're, our plan is to be shooting February. And we have a 33-day shoot um, in February and March. And I actually did add, because of Pinewood has a, uh, an underwater stage, I actually added a couple of pretty cool scenes where we're actually going to be able to use some real water. Fantastic. <laughs> so I have a very, very simple but very cool heroic sequence for the lead character for Ben Matthews. And it's just a quick moment where we get to get up, we're underwater and we actually get to physically do something underwater. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. yeah, that'll be our probably our final day of shooting. Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us. We look forward to hearing about uh, Oceanus as more develops. Absolutely. I'm huge fans of what you guys do, and I'm really excited to keep sharing, you know, some aspects of this behind the scenes. And maybe what we can do is even get you guys over there so you can see the production. That would be amazing. If you want to follow all the activities of Future Dude, well, they're on all of the social platforms, I'm sure you can imagine. And we will be linking to them on this episode's page. If you like what we do and you want to hear more Nerdy Show, 
and more interviews like this, well, we're entirely listener-supported, and you keep us alive. The best way to do that is to go to patreon.com slash nerdyshow and subscribe there. For a small monthly fee, or a large monthly fee if you're super generous, you can play an integral role in helping fund our efforts for continued nerdy awesomeness and get a ton in return, like early releases, exclusive outtakes, producer credits, and much, much more. You can also support us via Amazon. If you shop via our Amazon links at nerdyshow.com slash Amazon, anything you buy there will give back to the entire Nerdy Show network. Just set your bookmark that you would normally have for Amazon to our specific Amazon link, and anything that you randomly buy, whether it's video games or cat litter, will give back to Nerdy Show. For more ways to support us, head to nerdyshow.com support. We'll be back next week with another collection of the latest happenings in the nerd world. And as far as coming events, on the SciTech front, in late May, you can come find me at Moogfest in Durham, North Carolina. That is a festival that is a fusion of science, technology, and music, where at night, there's a bunch of cool bands that play, and during the day, there's a bunch of discussions from some of the brightest minds in the entire world. It's an incredible symposium of sight and sound, and one of my favorite events ever. So I'll be there again, and expect to hear a full report. I look forward to that report personally, as yet again, unfortunately, I cannot make one day. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Nerdy Show. Taking us out is an oceanic track by Uncle Monsterface. This is Scuba Diver. The track was featured on their 2014 album Rise of the Lava Men, but this version is a single from 2012 with a very different arrangement. It's one of the many tracks you can hear over at nerdy.fm our all-nerd music streaming service, which you can access online or via an app for Apple and Android. Here's Scuba Diver. We'll see you next time.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 